Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, the Indo-Pacific, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm your host, Misha Oslin, and I am extremely pleased to be able to welcome my old friend and colleague, Peter Van Praeg, to the show today. Peter is the founding president of Halifax International Security Forum. Uh, He served as the Senior Director for Foreign Policy at the German Marshall Fund, the Deputy Vice President of Programs at the National Endowment for Democracy, and the Chief of Party for the National Democratic Institute, both in the former Soviet Union and in Turkey. Uh, In 2006-2007, Peter served as the Senior Policy Advisor to the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Canada. Uh, He was educated in, uh, in Canada, in the United States, in England, uh, and he is currently, although working for Halifax, here in Washington, D.C. Peter, welcome to the Pacific Century. Misha, I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for for having me on. Well, first, I was advised by the legal department of Pacific Century Podcast that I have to say that I am the senior advisor for Asia at the Halifax International Security Forum, just in case there's any question about a conflict of interest. So everybody knows that now. And in case people were wondering, is Peter here to talk about Asia? Um, the answer is no. Not really. In fact, we are having a special non-Asia edition of the Pacific Century podcast today. We're going to be talking about the topic that's on everyone's minds, which is Ukraine. Now, there's obviously a lot of people we could have asked to come and talk about Ukraine, but we're here talking with Peter because unlike the thousands upon thousands of commentators and pundits and even policymakers who are talking about Ukraine, none of them were there in Ukraine when the Russian invasion happened. That is, none of them except Peter Van Praag. So I want to talk to Peter about what he was doing in Ukraine, what he saw on the ground, how he got out of Ukraine. And as the head of one of the world's most important democratic forums on international relations, what the current war means. So, uh, Peter, once again, welcome. Uh, As an old friend, it's it's wonderful to have you here uh, on a personal note extremely happy and grateful that you got out of Ukraine. Why were you there? When were you there? And what did you see? <clears throat> Misha, I appreciate it. And I, I do uh, um, r- really, I'm delighted to talk to you and, and uh, all of your listeners today. Um, when you said that this is, is not a conversation about Asia, let me just, I beg to differ a little bit in the sense that, yes, of course, we're talking about Ukraine, but the uh, consequences of what's going on there, <clears throat> absolutely, uh, you know, they, they are going to be felt everywhere, not only in Central Europe and North America, but uh, throughout throughout Asia as well. And I, th- I think we should probably um, lead to that direction, seeing as, as, as most of your listeners do want to hear about, about Asia. Um, so I, That's a great point, and thank you. We will do that. <clears throat> um, I, I, uh, you know, Halifax International Security Forum, um, and um, uh, you mentioned as you know your senior advisor, so I know that your questions are going to be fair and friendly. Um, uh, you know, our our mission is to strengthen strategic cooperation among the world's democracies, and we have an annual uh, meeting. Uh, we're an American organization based in Washington D.C., but our annual meeting every November is in is in Halifax, Canada, and uh, we've been we've been raising the flag and. Uh, trying to support Ukraine's uh, democracy uh, really since the beginning, uh, 
back in 2009, beginning of Halifax. Um, and, you know, my, my, it's not only my sense, uh, my belief is that when one democracy is attacked, um, all, all democracies are attacked, um, be it whether they're EU members or non-EU members, whether they're NATO members or non-NATO members. And so I was watching the situation very closely. Um, you know, um, at, at the Munich Security Conference, there was uh, rumblings that uh, when President Zelensky came to, to, uh, to Munich to talk, the Russians would use that opportunity to decapitate uh, the leadership and not have Zelensky back. And, and some people were advising that he not go. Um, but um, when, when it, it did become close, cl- close uh, to going, I, I decided to go in um, and demonstrate solidarity and support for the Ukrainian government uh, and the Ukrainian people. So I arrived on Wednesday. Um, when I landed, um, a senior government official uh, told me as I was coming in from the airport that the latest intelligence was that um, the attacks would begin within 36 hours, and they had very detailed intelligence of of what cities would be hit, including Kiev. Uh, and you didn't turn around and go right back to the airport? No, my, my office uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, was suggesting I do just that, and they were finding me uh, flights out that would leave that evening. And and uh, I decided to stay. Um, I went. Forget your office. What was your wife saying? Uh, she was saying, "Get the heck out." <laughs> My wife's pretty cool. My wife's pretty cool. And uh, I know she is. And she she knew where I was. She knew where I was. Um, and. Uh, I, I did. I, I wanted to protect my kids, actually. So I asked my wife not to tell them where I was. But, um, but uh, you know, she said to me later when I did get out, she said, you know, I I knew you were going to get out, and and uh, and uh, so I, I went to the president's office. I had meetings uh, with Alexei Danilov, who's the secretary of Ukraine's National Security and Defense uh, Council. He's essentially the individual who is running and coordinating the war, um, mm-hmm. and I was. I don't want to say surprised, but I was taken by how calm and confident he was. Um, and he and he told me, and this is you know three p.m. on Wednesday, uh, the day before the bombing started. He said it's. He said it. He told me it's starting tonight, um, and we're going to win. And um, wow. and he said it in a way that I have to tell you um, gave me confidence that the Ukrainian military and the Ukrainian people really were ready for what was coming. Um, and there was no uh, bravado about it, just very calm, um, said that he had the weapons in place. Um, he thanked the United States. Per- very pertinently, he, he made a point uh, of thanking Turkey. Uh, Turkey has, uh, ha- you know, is a NATO ally that, that many people in the West criticize. But um, when push comes to shove, uh, and the Ukrainians made this point very clearly to me, uh, you know, they're incredible. They, they, there was no doubt what side they were on, and um, and, and they've been giving uh, the Ukrainians very sophisticated drones, uh, not just technology. They've been mm-hmm. giving them drones. Um, mm-hmm. So he wanted that. He wanted uh, to make that point, and and we, we talked for a full half an hour. And he and he said, he said, look, I've got kids and I've got grandkids, and uh, and that's why we're doing this, and that's why we're fighting. And it was a it was a moving it was a moving uh, it was a moving moment um, from uh, from seeing him. Um, I went to the foreign ministry uh, and met with the deputy foreign minister. At the time, the foreign minister, Kuleba, was just returning back from Washington, uh, from the United States, where he had been speaking at the at the UN. Um, so I met with the deputy foreign minister, Emina Zaparova, who is an incredibly impressive woman who comes from Crimea. 
and she's actually mm-hmm. internally displaced person herself. And her, mm-hmm. her family had to leave Crimea in 2014. And she's been working uh, diligently night and day uh, to get the, to get the Europeans to understand the threat that they were facing. And, and we spent over an hour together and that was a very human conversation where we, you know, talked about the impact of what was coming on her own family um, that had to be, you know, she had, she had moved them out of Kiev. And, um, but, you know, the steely resolve that I got in both of those meetings was something that I took with me, uh, you know, back to my hotel Wednesday night, but before I, I went to the hotel, I had dinner, with some leaders of, of civil society at a, at a restaurant, you know, it could have been in Manhattan. It could have been in London, this beautiful seafood restaurant uh, in the center of Kiev. The place was packed. The place mm-hmm. was packed Wednesday night, the night that the bomb started falling, they started falling Thursday morning. Everybody, the, the wait staff, the, the people at the restaurant, everybody knew what was coming and they, they were out having dinner, uh, very calm, there was no um, panic. I couldn't get. I, I didn't sense any panic whatsoever. Just a calm. It wasn't. It, I was going to say it wasn't a sense of disbelief. It, no, people knew it was coming. You could tell that there was a seriousness. Nobody was laughing. Nobody. Nobody. Mm-hmm. Nobody was. Uh, you know. Uh, but everybody was just sitting, eating, talking with the the people they were having dinner with. And and again, I I I went back to my hotel uh, Wednesday evening, having a sense of. Of uh, uh, of confidence that the the Ukrainian people knew what was coming, and yet there were at that juncture there was nobody leaving the city. Uh, everybody was just um, sort of steel and and and, and readied. Uh, went back to the hotel, I was staying at an American hotel, and of course all the journalists were there in the lobby, and they were, you know, um, sitting there while Sean Penn was holding court, telling telling stories. Uh, and so that was that that in and of itself was. Was it was an experience, and then um, five a.m. My phone started ringing, and uh, and um, people in Ukraine uh, who knew I was there, and people outside of Ukraine were calling to tell me uh, that it was that it, that the that the bombing had begun. So then you are trapped in Ukraine. You're in Ukraine. Um, you decided not to stay for the duration, obviously. Um, we were actually in touch. I should should let the the listeners know we were in touch throughout that day. But I got a text from you saying I'm I'm trapped in Ukraine, and I of course laughed it off, uh, and then realized you were serious. So how did you get out? What what happened? I mean, I know because we were in touch throughout the day. But tell us what what you saw, what that was like. Sure. Well, um, you know, people who who really did care about me. I mean, Ukrainian officials and Ukrainian civil society. Their advice to me. Um, was you can't get out of Kiev now. It's too dangerous to stay in Kiev for the duration. And I, I did, mm-hmm. I did consider that. Um, I wasn't sure. I had, you know, I had scheduled a driver, uh, this lovely, this lovely Ukrainian man, um, to come uh, for the day, uh, the next day of meetings on Thursday. Had there not been had the war not started, um, and I wasn't sure if he was going to show up. Um, mm-hmm. but he did, uh, at a scheduled time, seven thirty in the morning, sent me a message. I, I was a little afraid that communications would be cut off, but that never happened. Right. We were able to communicate right. by phone, by, by, uh, messaging. Um, and so I, you know, I, I went downstairs, I, I checked out of the hotel, uh, and the hotel actually said, 
Um, we understand you want to check out, but we're not going to let you check out. Uh, we'll keep the room for you uh, uh, in case you can't uh, leave. You know, you, you, oh, you, you have you have this room yeah. as long as you want it, uh, which was really nice. Um, yeah. Well, obviously, no one else was probably coming in, but yeah. Right. Uh, um, and um, and so you know, I asked I asked my driver uh, who, whose name I don't want to give, but. You know, mm-hmm. I just said, you know, can we drive to the border? And uh, and he said, oh, absolutely. And then I realized he was calling his wife uh, to tell her, and he made a decision uh, on his own um, to leave his wife and his two daughters in Kiev wow. uh, and take a foreigner, an American, uh, safely to the border. And uh, and uh, we went inside the hotel. We had a nice big breakfast. Um, and then we set out um, uh, uh, to, to leave Kiev. Now, leaving Kiev um, was an enterprise because by that point, um, many, many people were trying to, to leave the city. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, you know, many people started going west. We decided, I, I decided, let's go south out of the city uh, to the Moldova border, uh, which is west of Transnistria, um, to get through uh, to Moldova. Um, but as we were going, and that was less traffic because most people again were driving west. Um, but mm-hmm. as we towards Poland, we should know to, towards Poland exactly. And as as we headed south, um, news out of Moldova became bad, and uh, Moldova closed its airspace uh, because Moldova itself was becoming frightened that the that the uh, uh, and, and there actually started being missiles launched from the Russian area mm-hmm. on the Moldova on the Moldova Ukraine border, border called Transnistria and missiles were being launched from there so as we were going south we then decided uh, to go west and then we went all the way back up to the Belarusian border um and wow. and uh, and then which is uh, all the way on the north we should note for those on, who don't have a map right on the north uh, and then we went along the Belarusian border uh to the north the northern uh, most uh entry point into into Poland. Now, uh, all along the way, I have to tell you, although the roads were crowd, crowded and although the uh, the lanes going into Kiev were empty, everybody drove with respect. Everybody obeyed the rules. Everybody stood in the line of the cars. There was no, uh, there again, there was no panic. There was no excitement. Everybody, you know, there were instances where you know, cars were lined up and no, not moving, and you know, people would get out of the cars and smoke cigarettes and talk to the cars uh, in front of them or behind them, and this and that. But there was a sense that, again, that everybody was in this together, and nobody was going to go on the other lane of the highway and just zoom up ahead. Um, anyway, as we got, uh, which I, I was very impressed with, I have to tell you, and even at the uh, going out of town, all the gas stations had long lines uh, of cars waiting to get gas. But again, it just seemed like everybody was very patiently waiting in, in those lines. Um, well, that was one question I was going to ask you. So, so first, just to give context, you left at about seven thirty in the morning. When did you cross into Poland? How many hours did it take? Uh, we we got into uh, we got to the border. Uh, uh, well, let me just say, as we were driving then. And getting closer to the the, uh, the western border, then we started seeing heavy Ukrainian military equipment going mm-hmm. going east uh, into the mm-hmm. city, into the bat, into into the fight. We saw tanks and tanks and tanks and tanks, and so the Ukrainians really were moving very quickly uh, uh, to, to to the fight. Um, 
Um, we got to the border uh, at 1030 at night. Um, and usually that would be a two hour, maybe three hour drive max, uh, but it's about 250 miles. Um, uh, and so, so it took, uh, it, it took something like almost 15, 15 hours. hours. Yeah. 15 hours. Yeah. And, and, and the, again, the gas stations were open. You could get gas and fuel, uh, close to Kiev. Yes. We could get, 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 get uh, close to Kiev. There were long, long lines as we got further out. Uh, and then also my driver would go off the road, like, you know, behind some roads and here and that, mm-hmm. and he would also avoid military, uh, Ukrainian military bases that, you know, that could have been, that could have been targeted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, we, we, we found gas, um, uh, uh, gas stations that, you know, that were, that were accessible, uh, outside of the Kiev area. Um, so, so you got, uh, obviously you got out and, and again, um, you were texting, I know your family and your, your work, you were texting me. So we knew that you were, that you were out. Um, as you came back and it took you a few days, uh, through a whole set of other journeys to get back home, obviously things had, had evolved. Was there anything in your estimation by the time from when you left to when you came back that the situation had changed in any way from better for the Ukrainians, worse for the Ukrainians? Obviously in the time that you were coming back, the EU and Europe began acting in ways that most people didn't anticipate. Can you talk a little bit about what this means. And then I'd also like to get back to the idea of, you know, what is at risk in terms of a democratic Ukraine? Yeah. I do want to talk about that, but I do want to, if it's okay, Misha, tell you one last anecdote of my experience. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, and that is when I got to the border, I couldn't tell how long the line of cars uh, was. Um, so I said goodbye to my driver. He went back, uh, drove all the way back to Kiev to be with his family. And he's, 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 he's in a bomb shelter now. He, he texted me just uh, this morning again um, with his family. And so I started walking um, to the border because the cars were all backed up and um, mm-hmm. it ended up being, uh, I timed it as an hour and 50 minutes. It was a 10 kilometer uh, at that point walk um, you know, just up the highway. Uh, mm-hmm. And I got to the border and they said, there's no, you can't, you can't cross on foot. You have to be in a vehicle. I said, I don't have a vehicle. They said, "Oh, just get in a vehicle, ask somebody. So there was a bus. I asked the bus driver, I offered a bus driver a hundred bucks. They said, no, you can't get in. All the seats are full. Again, they were just playing by the rules. And uh, mm-hmm. then I went to the line of cars and in the first car, there was a woman uh, just, she just driving and she just looked straight ahead. She didn't, she didn't look when I tapped on her glass. And the next, again, there was a woman driving third car, a woman driving fourth car, a woman. Finally, I get to a car. It's a, it's a Jeep Cherokee. And, um, it had a, an American f- flag, uh, um, you know, air freshener hanging from the rearview mirror. And there was mm-hmm. a, a young man driving and I tapped on the window and he rolled in and he said, do you speak English? And I explained to him my situation. And he, he, he leaned over and asked his wife, if this American could get in the, in the, uh, car, she said, absolutely. So he jumped out and he, he made room in the back seat beside his six-year-old daughter. And he took all, wow. he took all the things in the back that was there, and put them in the, in the far back. And I sat down behind, behind, uh, behind the passenger seat. And then, uh, he said, uh, he, he opened the door and he said goodbye to his daughter. And then he said, uh, <clears throat> goodbye to his wife. Very, very, not with any emotion, just as if he was going to work. And then, uh, and he told his wife to hop over and she hopped over and got into the driver's seat. 
and uh, and he shook my hand, and uh, and then uh, <clears throat> I left. And uh, his, his wife's name was Lena, which is also my wife's name. And I said, Lena, where's your husband? You know, why doesn't he stay in the car? And she said, he's going back to fight. And uh, and that's and that's really <clears throat> that was the story uh, at the border. It was women taking children and men staying to fight. Thank you. Uh, first of all, it's an amazing story. But we've heard a lot of um, anecdotes about that. And I actually wanted to ask you if that is what you had seen as well, that the men are staying back, the men are fighting and defending. It's the women and the children who are leaving, um, which is different than we've seen in other semi-similar situations. Um uh, there's also been reports of of thousands of Ukrainian men who had been working abroad in Poland and other countries actually crossing back over the border. So, my this is true, is what I'm asking. You you saw it, and this is in my, what's happening. In my, exper- <clears throat> my experience, that was my experience, and it wasn't only that it was women driving; it was men who had taken their families as far as they could to safety, and then going back. And it's amazing. It, it, yeah. it was, uh, and it, yes, it was. And so, you know, now to go to the, the larger question is, 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 you know, trying to find meaning, uh, in, in, in what's going on now. And, and, um, you know, I, I do think that there has been, uh, you know, some type of unity, uh, whether it's European unity or, or democracy's unity or NATO's unity. And, um, this is not, in my view, I've had a little bit of time to reflect upon this. This is not a result of Putin's attack on his smaller neighbor. Um, I don't think that the attack itself is what is bringing the democracies together. What is bringing the democracies together is Ukraine's brave response to Putin's attack. And in fact, Ukraine... And by standing firm and through its leader, who many people didn't expect to lead, um, uh, is, is putting the Western democracies in a position where they have no choice uh, but to be brave and to take a strong line about, uh, against Putin, even though that might not have been their first, uh, their first uh, choice. Uh, and so uh, it, it, it's, it's hard to, to think about. But it's it's uh, in many ways it is President Zelensky and the Ukrainian people who are saving the Western alliance at this juncture. That is a great point, um, and there's been a lot of commentary. You know, everyone wants to get the hot take out, but there's been a lot of commentary on. You know, this is a revitalization of the liberal international order, and this proves that the the system was working. But I think your your assessment is something people have to very seriously consider. And and if you look at statements from Zelensky, uh, from those around him, obviously they've been masters of the uh, of, of social media, uh, but statements from the church and other places, I mean, they are, they're couched in terms that I think the Western world really hasn't heard since, you know, the 1940s right. or, or maybe for very brief periods in 1956 or 1968, but largely since the 1940s. And so, Again, to amplify this point of yours, I hope people pay very close attention to it as someone who looks at it from the perspective, as you do, of democracies working together. Let me ask you, actually, before we move on to Europe, um, 
let me just ask you a little bit about, about Ukraine and, and about the nature of Ukrainian democracy. Um, and obviously there have been reports about, you know, the, the limitations of Ukrainian democracy, uh, whether it's uh, it's um, corruption or whether it's, um, you know, organized organized crime or organized interest, which, of course, every state has. Let's not pretend that states don't have that. But can you tell us a little bit about the democracy that Ukraine is is attempting to preserve right now? Um, well, preserve is one word. Build, build is another. Now, it's very important to keep in mind that um Unlike uh, um, Poland and Romania and Hungary that were beyond that were behind the Iron Curtain, um, Ukraine was a member of the of the Soviet Union, and mm-hmm. that uh, has with it uh, you know a lot you know two generations or you know from 1918 to 1990 91. Um, you know, a way of doing things and that way of doing things was not democratic. Um, and so, um, it is, it is hard to shed, uh, that type of, uh, thinking and that way of doing things, but the Ukrainians have really been moving in the right direction, um, since the breakup of the Soviet union. Um, I was there, uh, in 2004 at the orange revolution. And that was really the first moment, um, uh, you know, where the Ukrainian people demonstrated to themselves and to the, to the world that, that they wanted a modern future in, in Europe and that they didn't want to be part of the orbit of, of Moscow. And, um, you know, it does go in a little bit fits and starts, two steps forward, one step back, um, because this is a struggle as, as the country moves forward, because there are so many uh, uh, things that are trying to pull, pull it back. Um, and then, you know, in tw- and is that the reason it hasn't been yet accepted into the EU? I think so. I think so. Uh, you know, um, and then in 2014, once again, it demonstrated very clearly with mass demonstrations. People were shot on the street uh, um, uh, that it wanted a European future. Um, and um, Can you tell us a little bit about that? I think most people, if you say 2014, they think about Putin invading Crimea. What are you talking well, about? Well, Putin invading Crimea is a direct result of what were democratic protests in favor of uh, moving the country to the West. And so the, the president at that time, who, who, who had been elected uh, and had been elected on, a, on a, essentially a pro-Russian ticket, um, at that juncture... In his name? Uh, Yanukovych. Mm-hmm. Uh, and at that, at that juncture, um, uh, the Ukrainian people had had enough of him and had, had, were rising up uh, because he, he was vetoing uh, um, and essentially saying that Ukraine did not belong in the European Union or in NATO and did not have a NATO or European Union future. Actually, it was specifically EU at that point. It was not NATO. It was EU future. Um, and there were uh, protests, mass protests, that led the president to escape uh, after shooting into the crowd uh, uh, to Russia. And um, the... Russian response was to go in and to take Crimea uh, and to take uh, areas of the eastern provinces called the Donbass region um, and to stay there uh, since 2014. Now, the world did not recognize this, um, and that led to great frustration on the part of Putin, um, who continued to threat uh, to threaten uh, greater 
violence and disruption in Ukraine. And, um, you know, the Ukrainians fought very bravely. They lost 14,000 soldiers between 2014 and 2022 fighting the Russians in eastern Ukraine. And as a result of that, uh, they had uh, not only did they learn how to fight, but they had a sort of a steely resistance. And so while they were warning the West that the uh, Russians were going to invade uh, in, in greater numbers, um, they also, they're not stupid. They, they, they understood that they were going to have to have this fight by themselves. And so they've been asking for weapons. Um, defensive weapons um, didn't come uh, until Donald Trump became president. Uh, president Obama did not send uh, anti-tank missiles. Uh, Donald Trump did, uh, thankfully, and then President Biden continued that. And so they do have uh, now modern anti-tank weapons. Uh, they were getting weapons also from the Brits. The Germans famously were only sending helmets uh, up until the time that, again, it wasn't, it wasn't when Russia invaded that the Germans uh, changed their doctrine. It was only when the Ukrainians started fighting back and the, the, the Germans said that they would send uh, lethal weapons, defensive weapons. Um, and also, again, I'll mention again, the Turks have been sending uh, drones. And, the, and these are, this is top drone technology that actually uh, concerns the Russians because these are tank killers. These are armed drones. These are not just surveillance drones. No, no these are armed drones. And these, yeah. these are responsible for, for, uh, for winning a, 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 a war, a small war in uh, Nagorno-Karabakh in, uh, between Azerbaijan and Armenia last year. Your your point. Uh, I think there's obviously a lot of questions that people have as to as people watch the war unfold and and get ostensibly the best information they can. There's there's two questions I think that are mostly being asked. One is why are the Russians uh, seemingly screwing it up so much? Like for example, you mentioned that you thought communications would be cut off and they were not. Um, that's that's one example. Um, they've they've been very hesitant to control the airspace that that or seemingly hesitant. That's another example. Now some of the gloves are coming off, but that would be the first question. The second question is how could the Ukrainians be fighting back so well? But the point that you just made, another very important point that I at least haven't heard uh, from too many places yet is is the the experience that the ukrainians actually got in fighting from 2014 to 2022 that is that is a really important point uh, and again one that needs to be at least for policymakers factored into their decisions about how they think this war will progress so i'm i'm, I'm very glad that uh, that you mentioned that um what what is your assessment then of of the impact on i guess for lack of a better term, that the you know the democratic world, particularly in in Europe, uh, that is going to come out of this. And then after that, I'd like I'd like um, to switch over to to Asia to wrap up to give yeah. some to tell a little bit about what Halifax is doing, but then talk about some of the links. But first, is this a passing moment? Is it a blip? Is this something much more significant? Does it go away if Putin goes away? How, how do we? I know it's too early to think about a lot of it, but at the same time, this is what you do. You yeah. think about democracies working together. It's not too early. Uh, in fact, it might be too, <laughs> it might be late. Uh, but he, here, here's the point that I think is important. This is not business as usual. This, that the world changed last week. Um, you know, uh, you know, there are seminal events that, that, that alter uh, issues and we cannot, uh, as a community of democracies, whether it's the United States, Canada, Europe, pretend that this is uh, this is a normal incident. Um, this is uh, 
I mean, I, I, I mean, let, let me put it to you this way: if Putin had inched in a little bit and taken a little bit of more territory, taken a little bit of a, a land bridge between Donbass and Crimea, so that he had more access to the Black Sea, I'm quite sure uh, that the West would have just poo-pooed it, more sanctions, and that would have been business as usual. Um, and I was very concerned that that is what was going to happen because that really would have been, uh, I believe, frankly, more dangerous than what has happened. And what has happened is Mr. Putin did miscalculate. We don't know why, whether he uh, he, he, misunder, he misunderstood, whether he, uh, which I think is a great word created by it's a great President word. Bush, um, whether he misunderstood the the, uh, the Ukrainians or whether he was being lied to by his own advisors. We don't know exactly what was going on, but that what happened is the Russians are not ready for what they started. Um, and um, we cannot go back to a period of pre-24 February. And so it's very important now that we understand that the Ukrainians are fighting not only for their homeland, not only for their democracy, but they are fighting for the values that Europeans and North Americans and Japan and, and d- democracies around the world uh, pay lip service to and have paid lip service to for, for a long, long time. And they are doing that and, and we cannot let them down now. And so the world is going to change. Um, Putin cannot be, uh, um, we don't know exactly what's going to happen, but Putin cannot be welcomed back into polite society ever. Um, I would like to see efforts made at educating the Russian people who are also being held hostage by Vladimir Putin. Uh, the Russians are very good at getting rid of leaders. Uh, they've done it before, and they can do it again. And we should be playing hardball now and making sure that the world is not accepting Putin's Russia back to, at any, uh, at any uh, uh, institution. So that calls into question now the future of the Security Council itself. And I do think that that has to be something that is on the agenda because there cannot at the United Nations at, at, we the, should know. at the United Nations where where Russia is a permanent member and has been since the creation of the of the United Nations we cannot we cannot pretend that the United Nations uh, you know the United Nations has very good agencies the World Food Program UNICEF these are agencies that do good work and help people's lives but as a political organization um, it has been stalled now for a long time there have been talk about reforming it and now those voices have to be heard and there has to be serious conversations about what to do uh, about, well, about reforming them the you're very Council. measured uh, you're, you're very measured in this i think w- there is an absurdity to it that the russians yes. chaired a meeting of the security yes. council on the invasion I mean, that that goes beyond parody. That gets into Alice in Wonderland, you know, the bizarro world of Superman. That's just where everything's (laughs) inverted. Um, So it's a very good point. But I think, you know, that's again, that's what the um, that's what those in Washington would think about. And that's important. And I I don't want to say it's not important. Um, But the but the things that are on people's minds are, of course, is this going to go nuclear? Is is this something where the stronger we fight back, the more that Putin feels you know, he may have pushed himself into a corner, but the corner's there. Um, if he is defeated here, 
Uh, does that mean he strikes out at an easier target, such as the Baltics? Uh, traditionally, at least for a period in Russian history, uh, they would swing back and forth between Europe and Asia. So they would they would meet with a defeat in Europe, and then they would try to expand more in Asia against China or with Korea. And then when they'd meet a defeat, such as 1904, 1905 with Japan, they'd swing back to Europe. So geopolitically, can you, and you've looked at Russia for a very, very long time, can you play out which is how we know it's a fool's errand, but can you play out a little bit of what you think uh, we should be thinking about? It's one thing to talk about Security Council, and that's fine, but are, you know, are we at the most dangerous nuclear moment since 1962, or should the Baltics not be looking towards Christmas? What's happening? It's, it's a very good question. I believe that this um, incursion, starting this war, was not a rational decision by the leader of Russia. And when a leader makes a decision that is not rational, I do think that it's important to ask whether or not that leader is going to continue to make decisions that are not rational. And so I think all of the things that you are saying now are important uh, to, to note because we're no longer in a, in a Russia for everything that you want to say about it, both during the Soviet union and after um, you know, it's, it's, it's bumped up against us, but we've, and, and it's done things that are very confrontational, but we've never, we've been able to see and understand what the, what the rational thinking is in this case. Um, this was, this, this, this was not a, a rational decision, uh, to fully invade, uh, Ukraine. And I think we're seeing it play out now, um, uh, because, because the Russians are in disarray. The Russians have not been able to, um, to capture uh, the targets that they wanted to capture by this time. Um, the reports are, and these are not just from the Ukrainian side, these are now being verified by the UK, that there's upwards of 5,000 uh, Russian dead soldiers. And just to, just to put that into context, the United States lost four, over, just over 4,000 dead in the entire Iraq war. So this is a huge defeat for Putin. And, it, it, and the Russians, by the way, if I may know, just not to interrupt you, but they lost only, I think, about 14,000 or so in Afghanistan over 10 years. That's correct. This is an incredible defeat. And famously in Russia, Russian moms have incredible power. And once the Russian moms start getting notes back that their boys are not coming home, make, make no mistake about it, Russian moms will be very proud to lose their sons in defense of Russia. Uh, that is true. But Russian moms are not uh, are going to go crazy because they know what's happening. By the way, there's very close contact between Ukrainians and Russians. They're talking to each other on WhatsApp. They're and and the, Mr. Putin needs to be very worried what's going on inside his country. Now, so that's number one. Number two, I think President Biden did a good job at the State of the Union saying that not one inch of territory, NATO territory, is going to be ceded. And I, so I do think the Baltics are protected. And I think that was a very important message um, because... And you think that's a credible that, assertion? It has to be. It has to be. Uh, and I think the fact that he said it at the State of the Union, Republicans got up and clapped, makes it credible. Um, now, the issue is, <clears throat> what is going to make Putin go crazy? Uh, and you know, how much help can we give the Ukrainians um, without Mr. Putin going a little bit crazy? The, the talk, even the fact that we're talking about uh, the possibility of nuclear weapons either on the battlefield or, or beyond is, is crazy in and of itself. But let's, 
let's just um, let's just play by Mr. Putin's rules for a minute, um, and let's let's uh, be very careful because the rules of the Cold War were that Amer- an American soldier would not shoot a Russian, and a Russian would not su- shoot an American. Um, and those battles that happened during the Cold War were all th- through proxies. And so I do think that um, Mr. Biden and the Europeans have been very clear that weapons are coming. I think that's part of this game. I think that's fair, fair game. Um, and then the conversation now about a no-fly zone is something that has to be taken very seriously, whether it's in Western uh, Ukraine or whether it's throughout. Um, and that's something that should be thought about. Uh, it can't be discarded out of hand because we're scared of World War III. Um, we've, you know, we've been up against a nuclear Soviet Union or a nuclear Russia, you know, since 1949. So, so this is, uh, but not one, not one that, that had one man, except for the very early years at the end of Stalin's reign, one man controlling the, the decision and, 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 and in your point, possibly a not rational. Yes. Yes. These are, that wasn't Khrushchev. It wasn't Brezhnev. No, these are all things that we have to consider Misha. These are all things that we have to consider. Um, but at the same time, are we going to let his rhetoric frighten us into, into complete non-action? So I think that, I think it's very important that the whole world, not just the Western democracies, but, uh, but, uh, but Asian democracies, uh, Africans uh, in the Americas, everybody has to stand up and make sure that everybody knows that Russia is alone on this. We need the Indians to do more than they have. Um, and, um, and to say more, I mean, it's, it's nice that they abstained, but they needed to, the, the Indians need to be on the right side of this as well. Well, that's actually a great transition uh, into Asia. Now, um, lots to talk about uh, in terms of um, uh, in terms of Ukraine. Uh, you saw the Japanese, for example, come out really basically four square with the uh, the Western nations in um, uh, cutting uh, cutting Russia off from sources of financial support of uh, refusing visas. I mean, there's a whole list that came out of the Prime Minister's office. Uh, China's another story, and China's been walking a very fine line just a week before the invasion. Of course, you had a summit between Xi and Putin uh, on the sideline of the Olympics, uh, where they touted a new partnership with no limits. Uh, but there certainly seem to be some limits. So what is your take on what this means uh, in terms of China? And then what is the impact on Asia? So... Um... So I now have have had conversations with with some folks inside uh, China, um, and uh, they, you know, it's actually not what I expected. It's actually a little bit even more alarming than what I expected. Um, essentially, what I'm now hearing, uh, and I don't know if you've heard this, Misha, is that. Uh, you know, it's not that the Russians were asking permission, but essentially they were asking permission from the Chinese for this incursion to start this war. The Chinese gave it. Um, And that's a little bit frightening in and of itself that Russia is essentially becoming a client state of China. Um, But, um, but that the Chinese were ready to watch how this went and were ready to take action. We don't know exactly what that action was going to look like, uh, simultaneously with what was going on while, while, while the world's attention was in Central Europe, that the Chinese were going to do something in Taiwan. Um, and now what I am hearing is that as a result of uh, the solidarity, again, that is a result of 
Ukrainian uh, courage and bravery in fighting um, that the Chinese now have been taken taken aback by exactly uh, how robust um, uh, the democracies have reacted to this. And now the Chinese are getting actually a little bit cold feet and a little bit nervous um, about being seen to be too close to this Russian uh, enterprise, especially as more civilians are being killed. Yeah, that's um, uh, that's obviously been among the Asianists a, a topic of great debate. Um, without you know, touting tooting my horn, I mean, I had a piece in the Spectator on what does Ukraine mean for Taiwan, and rather than answering it, because I don't think anyone can answer it, but raising these questions, and then there are obviously great differences. There is a difference between having an EU as well as NATO in Europe and having an Asia where there's none of that. And so the, the, the ability of concerted response is a little bit more difficult in Asia. It doesn't mean that it wouldn't happen. And I think you're right that the, the Chinese are looking at it. You can see the rhetoric that is coming out of Beijing is changing and, and becoming more cautious. And of course, they also want um, to, uh, to look for, for them. If Russia as a client state wins, it's a, it's a plus if the Chinese position themselves as semi peacemakers and that helps, that's a plus. So they're, they're very transactional uh, about it. Um, so your point earlier, a little bit earlier about India, your point about how could you get this? So now we have a quad, we have an AUKUS, we have different mechanisms that have begun to spring up and, and, you know, the degree to which Beijing has to think about how those might not only work together, but then spread out amongst other other nations. It's a much harder thing. You still have most of Southeast Asia as a as a client state of China. Um, you know, you, you've got uh, North Korea, of course. I don't even need to talk about North Korea. But it's but it's fascinating what you said. You're beginning to hear from inside China, and um, I think we all need to be very careful in looking at um, in looking at how Beijing prosecutes its own policy going forward. And that question of Coincidental timing is certainly one that that people talked about. Um, look, we, we've been talking for a while, and, and we're sort of getting near the end. Although we, I, th- I think we could go on for for a long time, but I, I'd like maybe to talk a little bit about Halifax and what Halifax is doing in Asia, because I think it is tied in a very broad and general way to this question about democracy and developing democracy. So, uh, first, we we just and people have already forgotten we just finished the Olympics. Um, there was a huge amount of questioning as to whether um, we in the West, let alone America alone, should have participated in the Olympics, um, validating a regime that, of course, has crushed democracy in Hong Kong, has imprisoned and put into concentration camps Uyghurs. What would, as as probably the world's leading, in fact, it is the world's leading organization on democratic cooperation. What did Halifax do uh, in relation to the Olympics? Well, thanks very much for that, Misha. So, um, what I mean, what we did, and also what we wanted to do, we we, we had planned uh, to have a major international conference, Halifax in Taipei, uh, the week before the Olympics. But because of COVID um, and the situation in East Asia, um, they weren't ready to take uh, visitors, and so we, we've delayed doing our HFX Taipei project, uh, and we'll be announcing the, the dates as, as soon as we can. During the Olympics themselves, we put out a public education campaign that contrasted um, the beauty of Olympic sport with the horrors of Chinese concentration camps. And I, I think that they're, you know, these are concentration camps. These are uh, essentially Turkish Muslims, uh, the Uyghurs in China that are being, uh, that are being, 
uh, detained, that are being uh, brainwashed, that are being ethnically cleansed. This is, uh, by definition of a number of Western countries, including two American administrations now, genocide. And standing by uh, and, and pretending that that is not happening is not uh, essentially, first of all, it's morally corrupt, but it's strategically stupid. Um, we need to take on every autocratic regime, including the big and powerful and rich ones, i.e. China, uh, every inch of the way. We can't let them ha have an inch. Every time that there is a crime, we need to call it out. 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 And if we don't, then what we're seeing in Ukraine is exactly what we're going to see in East Asia as well. And we can't allow it to happen. We need to stop small confrontations when we can so they don't lead to big conflicts and confrontations. And we can go back at any juncture in history uh, and, and, and note um, the mistakes that have been made in the past, and let's please not make them again. So tell us a little bit, I mean, obviously I know, but tell us a little bit about HFX Taipei, HFX Taiwan. Um, has any other major international uh, convening authority, you know, whether you think about Munich, you think about IISS, and we can name a lot of them, has anyone ever held a major, a major global international conference in Taiwan to talk about democracy and cooperation amongst democracies? No, th this would be the first. And when we did announce it, uh, it got a lot of attention. But this would be the first major international event in, in Taiwan. There, I mean, t Taiwan, to their credit, hosts th their own events, um, uh, as, as, many, uh, as many places do. Uh, but this would be the first time that there was a major international event in Taipei. And, and we are looking forward to hosting it. And we're looking forward to, to shining a light and, and bringing attention to the incredible democracy that the Taiwanese people have created. Uh, it really is uh, in stark contrast to um, what's going on in mainland China, um, what the Taiwanese ha have been able to do. You know, Lee Kuan Yew, uh, the longtime leader of Singapore, famously said that democracy is not for Asians, that uh, Asians have their own values. And uh, Taiwan um, is, one, is, is, is a place that just proves that completely wrong. There is, there is such a thing as Chinese democracy. It's in Taiwan, and the world needs to know about it, and the world needs to, to protect it as well. And, and we should note that next week... Um... Uh, South Korea will have a presidential election. Yes. Um, Japan, of course, has just had uh, re fairly recently had another peaceful uh, transfer of power and is heading into upper house elections. Uh, so the idea that democracy is not for Asians is is, is something that, you know, our, our own experiences show uh, is not correct. Um, just just a quick question on on hfx or halifax uh in taipei at the annual meeting in halifax you have you have people from how many countries how many different democracies come and about how many folks come and, I, and how many then will you be bringing to taipei for again the first international meeting um thanks Bisha. so H halifax is is essentially it's 300 people i mean more, more people show up but it's 300 delegates and uh and it's about 80 countries um, and, you know, including countries that are, and I'm assuming more yeah. want to come than just 300. That's not huge. No, it's not huge. Uh, we try to keep it intimate. Uh, we, 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 um, we keep people, um, you know, who are constructive. Uh, this is not um, the same as some other conferences where it's just a bunch of speeches. We, we, we bring people together to tackle 
challenges in a constructive way. Um, we do not have government representatives from the non-democracy. So the Chinese are not there. The Russians are not there. The Iranians are not there. They never have been there. And that just creates an environment that is, that is conducive to moving forward and t- tackling problems together. And uh, so we're very proud of what we're doing and, and it's, it's important to do it uh, in East Asia. And so we're going to be doing it at the same scale and the same size uh, in Taiwan as soon as, uh, as soon as makes the most sense uh, with regard to COVID, but also other issues as well. And, and, and I told the Ukrainians we're going to do the same thing in Ukraine as soon as this war is over. Um, there are a lot of good things that can come out of the courage uh, and the fortitude of the Ukrainians standing up to the Russians. And we cannot leave the Ukrainians alone after this battle. That's a great, you, you heard it here first. There will be a Halifax, Ukraine, a Halifax, Kiev, uh, as well as a Halifax, um, Taipei, uh, which again is something that I don't think any other organization is, is doing in the same way. Um, look, Peter, we've been, again, we've been talking for a while and, and it's been, you're, I know you're busy. You just got back and, and you're, it's been very generous of your time. Uh, you don't need to, to comment on this, but I, I just, again, as someone who's known you for a long time, known Halifax, I just want to, to reiterate that there's without, without being, um, cliched about it. Um, look, talk is cheap. Uh, there's, there's been, uh, already an ocean of ink spilled over Taiwan, uh, and I just want to reiterate for folks that to remind them that you were the only leader of a civil society organization of an international convening organization to go to Ukraine on the eve of war um, that you you again to people would say maybe flippantly you walked the walk you didn't just talk the talk and not only were you there you had to escape uh, which is something that no one who has spent their lives sitting on panels uh, from from where we are, not those who we've joined, asked to join us, but no one's had to do that. And that is incredibly and entirely to your credit. And I'm so grateful that you took some time to join us today to talk about what really happened and and, and what it means. Uh, well, I really appreciate it, uh, Misha. I'm, I'm going to, I am going to write up my experience because I bore witness to a great deal and I'm, I'm, I'm really, um, I'm really uh, grateful to you for the opportunity to share some of this because it is really important for your listeners and others to understand um, that that the Ukrainians are. I mean, look, I arrived. I had a meeting with, uh, as I mentioned, with the Secretary of the Security Council, and first thing he said is, you know, because he knew I was coming, as you said, at a dangerous time. He said, "You're very brave," and I said, "Mr. Danilov, thank you very much. I appreciate you saying that. I'm not brave. You're brave." the people of Ukraine are brave. And um, I, I, I was there, I, I got out and now there are, are millions of uh, Ukrainians who are, who are not going to let the Russians uh, take control of their, of their homeland and their, their democracy. And uh, it was a privilege to be there to, to see the fortitude and the steel of their will. And uh, I'm just happy that, uh, that I was there and I can share it with your listeners. So thank you, Misha. Well, thank you. I, uh, the Ukrainians are brave, but but I disagree. You are brave as well, uh, and and it, it really has been wonderful and an honor to have you on the on the program uh, again. We have been talking with Peter Van Prague, who is the president of the Halifax International Security Forum, telling us what it was really like in Ukraine and what it means not only for Europe but for Asia and the rest of the world. I'm glad you joined us today uh, for the Pacific Century. I'm Misha Oslin, and we will see you again next time.
This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.